Thank you, Steve. I was thinking that something similar to Steve in that uh, you can sing He Will Hold Me Fast at My Funeral. It's one of my favorites. Uh, and the, the essence of these songs that just ring true is that we serve a God who is um, not like us, whose ways are beyond our ways, who is big and mighty and magnificent. And as we continue our study through the book of Daniel, one of the things that we're doing in our study of the book of Daniel is that we are taking the uh, kind of the airplane view, the 30,000 foot view. You know, we could uh, dig in and um, spend longer and talk about some of the themes. But really what we're doing is by going through each chapter is, is, is looking and seeing what is each chapter, what is it about? What is it that God is, is displaying about Himself in this chapter? And, and as if you've been with us through our study of the book of Dan, Daniel, you've seen that there's been this drama that's been unfolding. And if we look at it almost like a drama, what we would say is the main character in this drama is God. And that God over and over is proving Himself as the sovereign, majestic, king of the universe. And as this drama is unfolding, over and over again, we have God coming up against this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the ruler over this vast empire on earth that is ever expanding. And over and over, we have Nebuchadnezzar um, running into this brick wall that is God. And we've said that one of God's purposes in doing this, and, and one of the purposes that we see unfold if we're reading carefully, and we're not, if we're not reading into the text, is we see that the nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah, is in captivity. And one of the things that God is doing is that God is not only showing King Nebuchadnezzar that he is king and that he is the sovereign, but he is reminding his people in the midst of their captivity, that He is their God. And if they would just turn to Him and humble themselves, that He would rescue them. And so it's very interesting, this constant reminder that God is giving them. So it's very interesting as we jump into our text today and we see uh, this kind of crazy event that unfolds and that through what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, we see that God is mercifully wooing His people back to Him. Now, one of the things I want you to see right off the bat is there is a structure to this chapter. Uh, there are several things that are interesting about this chapter, and we will get into some of them a little bit later. But the first thing I want you to see is that the structure of this chapter is that we have a doxology given by Nebuchadnezzar, we have a narrative, and then it ends with another doxology. And so if we just look at the doxologies and what Nebuchadnezzar is saying about our God, we get the point of this whole chapter. Starting in verse 3. Uh, starting in verse 3. How great are His signs. Talking about God. Let me start in verse 2. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs. 
How mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And His dominion is from generation to generation. And then if we look at the end of this chapter in verse 34, notice the doxology here as well. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one, no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, what have you done? This is where we end up. This is where this chapter is taking us. This is the emphasis that the writer here, the writer Nebuchadnezzar, wants us to know about this God that we serve. And it's interesting to me that you ask, when we'll see, what brought Nebuchadnezzar to this conclusion. And we would have thought by reading the book of Daniel that, that Nebuchadnezzar might have gotten it earlier But we see Nebuchadnezzar kind of runs into this brick wall that is God, gets up, forgets, goes back to his old ways, and then constantly hits the wall until these events that we see this morning. And one of his reasons, I think, for continuing to run into this brick wall is his pride. Nebuchadnezzar was a very prideful man, and he had reason to be according to earthly standard. Look at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, all the nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. That Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom was so vast and encompassed so many people that this was the greatest kingdom on earth at that time. Notice verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, notice these words, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. That this king that we saw at the beginning of the book of Daniel was on these conquests, was acquiring other nations, acquiring other lands, and was busy at doing all these things. We notice that here he is at rest and he is flourishing, meaning he has sat down. He is in a time of great safety, comfort, and he is enjoying the fruits of his victory. A time of great prosperity. Again, in verse 30, the king reflected and said, Is not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? One of the things you need to know about Nebuchadnezzar is that as if if he... I'm imagining a a great palace, and if he was on the roof of his palace or, or up looking over, as far as he could see, he could say, mine. Such great wealth, such a great kingdom that his wife, as the story goes, uh, was was from a place of luxurious gardens and greenery, and she was missing her homeland, that Nebuchadnezzar had a simple garden built that, oh yeah, was one of the seven great wonders of the world at the time. Anything he wanted, anything he wanted was at his 
disposal. Archaeologists talk about this kingdom and talk about uh, the vast number of, of bricks and uh, the vast number of artifacts that have um, this time period in Nebuchadnezzar's name and hand all over them. Notice the key here again. I want to read verse 30 and I hope you saw something here. Great wealth, great kingdom, great majesty. And notice verse 30 again. Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Last week, as we looked at Daniel chapter 3, we saw Nebuchadnezzar saying the same thing about this statue that he set up, that by his own hand, that was told to us over and over and over again. We see just this incredible pride. Now, I'm so glad, I'm so glad that at our day and age, the rulers that we have over us, dare I say our president and the presidential candidates to be, don't struggle with pride. I was thinking about this, you know, when we get to the presidential debates uh, later on, what is it that you always hear? Look at my accomplishments. Look at what I have done. Great pride. You know, we are in a flourishing economy ourselves. We are at relatively peaceful times. I know we've always got some things going on across the world. Many of you, if you woke up and checked your portfolios today, the NASDAQ, I think, is still up. David, is it still up? If David's still in here, it was up at some point. I don't keep track of those sort of things. Down just a little bit? Oh, it's up. Okay, thanks. We can take great pride in these things. God is, and we'll get to this at the end, but God is teaching us something as well. Now, God is not going to let this stand. And so the whole point of this chapter is God humbling Nebuchadnezzar. And this is a very interesting story. And so we're going to walk through it uh, pretty quickly. And so look back at verse 4 and 5. We have Nebuchadnezzar at ease in his house. And then something happened. In verse 5, it said, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And so he gave orders to bring into his presence the wise men of Babylon that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. So Daniel is troubled and notice, remember we had Daniel, we, Nebuchadnezzar is troubled. Remember, earlier, Nebuchadnezzar had been troubled by a dream. He wouldn't tell him the dream. Here, we have him, I think, so troubled that he's just blurting out what the dream is. And he calls on these same folks who could not give him the dream interpretation before. And then in verse 8, but finally Daniel came in before me. Notice this. Notice how he's talking about it at this point as he's relating this story to us. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is 
Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him. I think, as Nebuchadnezzar is writing this, one of the reasons he says uh, to the name of my God is that he is trying to relate to us that still, at this moment, in his pride, he is relating Daniel's ability to whom? The God of the universe? Yahweh? No, he's relating it to his God. Daniel came in, and uh, Daniel said to him, uh, well, tell me this dream. And here's the dream. Now, these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And the tree grew so large and became strong, and its height reached the sky, and, was, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. And its foliage was beautiful and abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and the living creatures fed themselves from it. Great dream so far, right? As I was looking in the visions in my mind, as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground and put a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched. Notice that. Notice from a tree to a person here. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let the beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Daniel, I'm not going to try to pronounce that name again, tell me its interpretation. Inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to, For the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And Daniel interprets this dream. And here's the interpretation. Daniel says to the king, Let not this dream or its interpretation alarm you. My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. I think it's interesting here. I think one of the things that's interesting here is that Daniel has really warmed up to King Nebuchadnezzar. That the relationship here has grown so much so that Daniel, in knowing what this dream means, we see it here and we're going to see it in a minute, first of all says, let this never happen to you. I'm going to speak here because Daniel speaks the word of God. I'm going to speak here, but let this not happen happened to you. I think this is another example of how great and wonderful this kingdom was that, that Daniel was flourishing um, because of the blessings and because of uh, the, the power that Nebuchadnezzar had. It said, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached the sky and was visible to all the earth and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant in which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt and whose branches, birds fly and lodge. It is you, O king, For you have become great and grown strong. And your majesty has become great and reached to the sky. 
and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze all around it, new grass in the field, in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until the seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High. Notice what Daniel says here. Daniel doesn't say, this is the decree from whom your God, King, or the Holy Spirits, uh, he says, this is the decree which the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the fields, and you'll be given grass to eat like cattle, and drenched with dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you. Notice this. Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. And it was, and in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots in the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. I don't know about you, but I think if I had gone through everything that Nebuchadnezzar had gone through, I think I would want to get on my face right then and say, may it never be. Daniel, your God rules. What do I need to do? New Testament version, what must I do to be saved? It's interesting here that this doesn't happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He was so drunk on his pride. This is speculation. But I think what happened to him is that he said he was feared Feared this, but he was willing to just kind of tiptoe around, and we're going to see in a moment, until he felt like, oh, God's forgotten that. Now, I want to pause here for a second. Don't we do this with sin as well? That sometimes we're caught in a sin and somebody may bring a sin to our attention and maybe it's a habit and something that's going on in our life and instead of making a radical change, we kind of pause for a moment, then take a step, and when the lightning bolts don't hit us and immediately knock us dead, we find ourselves going right back into that sin. And Nebuchadnezzar was given the opportunity... To repent, notice Daniel, what he says here in verse 27. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. In other words, Daniel is saying, humble yourself. Do righteousness. Submit yourself to God. And, and we could have a whole sermon on this. <laughs> and, break away from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Gary, several months ago maybe now, um, preached a message in which, I think there were several weeks of messages where he talked about that wherever the gospel flourished, people flourished. And the poor and the needy were taken care of. If you, if you trace this throughout the whole Bible, it's interesting. Throughout the whole 
Bible, one of the things that God always tells His people is to look out for the poor among you. Look out for the needy among you. It's often phrased in something like this, the, the aliens, the sojourners, the widows, and the orphans. Two real quick words. <laughs> it is okay that we may have different opinions. I'm speaking politically here for just a second. We can have different opinions about what is best for the needy among us, and we can debate what that looks like if our hearts are in a place to where we want to take care of them. But as Christians, we can never stand in a context with anyone or anything where the poor among us and the needy are neglected. It's unbiblical. Again, hear me out. Because you're going to want to throw a label on me here that's unfair. We can debate about how to best take care of the poor and needy among us. What we can't debate is that as believers, we stand arm in arm with people who are about that business. Locally, one of the things in, within this church, what it means is that we are quick to spend our benevolence money. <laughs> I love spending our benevolence money. It is great. One of the most glorious things was the first time that we ran out of benevolence money. It's a good thing. Another way that this happens, and it just thrills my heart and thrills my soul, is those of you, uh, and, and, and I want to broaden this to, to big, the culture of our church continuing to shift towards taking in um, the most helpless among us who are orphans or those who don't have homes through foster care or through adoption. And it's not just the families that are taking these folks in, these little ones, these helpless, but it's also those of you who are watching kids and taking food and becoming surrogate grandparents and praying and doing all these other things. That's the culture of taking care of these kids and wrapping our arms around this. It is vitally important. And everywhere God's Word goes, this message goes. Okay, close that bracket. Daniel says, do this. Do this. Repent and do this. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't repent. Now, one of the interesting things here. Uh, so, let's go forward and see what happens. He didn't... Repent. And then we have in verse 29. Twelve months later. And I just imagine. Well, it, it tells us. Twelve months later he was walking on the roof of his royal palace. And the king reflected and said. Isn't this not Babylon the great. Which I myself have built in the royal residence. By my power. And for the glory of my majesty. And while this word was coming out of his mouth. Came a voice from heaven saying. King Nebuchadnezzar. To you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. If you remember, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, a key verse in interpreting this book, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar, in your pride and arrogance, as you were walking on this roof, you once more thought that your sovereignty, your reign, your dominion was 
according to your works? And God said, this is not so. And here's what happened. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of all mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. And immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. This mighty, powerful man humbled. Humbled. Now, one of the most interesting things about this chapter I skipped over on purpose. Notice in verse 4, in chapter 4, verse 1. Remember, the most powerful king of his time. There was no one who rivaled him. And notice, pick something up here. It is very important that we pick this up. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all peoples, nations, men of every language that live in all the earth, may peace abound. Listen to this. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High has done for me. Then, in verse 4, notice who's writing this narrative. I, Nebuchadnezzar. How often do we hear kings and powers and authorities giving you grave examples about their arrogance, and about how their arrogance led to a fall. When was the last time, and I'll just broaden it, you heard a political figure talk about the destruction of their pride? And here we have this really odd thing happening of this man in the middle of this book giving us this narrative where he's telling us and he says it is good and it was good to me for this to happen with me and to me and we have to say what in the world was going on here and I'll tell you what was going on. The best example I can use and I stole this from somebody. And you may say, what in the world are you talking about, Lewis? Can you imagine pulling up to the Grand Canyon? That's one of the most majestic places that I've been. That's why I'm using it. Or maybe to the top of Mount Everest. You know, I'll use the top of Mount Everest. I don't think that anyone has ever died at the top of Mount Everest with a makeup mirror in her hand. Meaning, this journey, this wonderful feat, you get to the top of the world, and you see the beauty and the majesty. What happens in your brain as you get there is not, oh, I wonder if my makeup's on straight, or if my hair's in the right place, or I could look at this, but I would rather look at me. You see, one of the things that happens is when we come across true beauty, true splendor, 
and true power, we become overwhelmed. And this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar truly met the God of the universe, he was no longer looking in the mirror at himself. He was no longer concerned about what he had done and what he had built because he had encountered something much greater that led him to explode with this doxology about the greatness and the dominion of God. God in His glory eclipses the mightiest of men. The mightiest of men. The king saw God, saw His glory. And in the midst of that was truly humbled. Now, notice, the focus in this chapter, if we were to go throughout and look at all the things that are repeated, ten times it talks about the earth and the domain of the earth, and sixteen times it talks about heaven. In, this, in these verses we see that God is called the King of Heaven. That's the only time in the Old Testament that this phrase, phrase is used. And the key here is that Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel are giving to us the relationship between the heavenly king and the earthly kings. And the point, the point is that God reigns supreme over all. And it's really the point of the book of Daniel. We saw that in chapter 2 with the image, with the gold head and all that. And then we see from chapter 7 on, a summary of the prophecy at the end of the book of Daniel is this. Ready? Get out your pens. God wins. And and notice God's sovereignty in this as well. God gave a dream. God gave the interpretation. God changes the mind of Nebuchadnezzar into that of an animal. And then He restores him. Now, here's the irony. Why was Israel in captivity? The Bible tells us over and over that God's people were in captivity because in their pride, they turned away from God and they did not trust the power of God to save them. And in their pride, they turned to themselves and came up with their own ways to save themselves and protect themselves. And God over and over tried to woo them back, but in their pride and arrogance, they stayed in this lane. So both... Israel and Nebuchadnezzar were struggling with pride. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, we know this verse, and um, I'm, I'm, I will, a pet peeve of mine here. This verse is written to Israel, it's not written to America. In my people who are called by my name, if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. That this was God's promise to His people Israel. And what what I want you to know is that Israel in captivity, that this promise holds true. That if God's people who are called by His name will humble themselves and will pray... He'll heal them. And God is unfolding this drama 
before them. And the plea, as I read this, I, I just come away in this drama with by saying, oh, that Israel would repent at this point. Oh, that Israel would, would be like this pagan king Nebuchadnezzar and see the greatness and the dominion of God. Oh, that Israel would know that God has the power and the might over Babylon. Babylon is no match for their God. Their God is sovereign, and their God controls all earthly kings. Their God is sovereign over their captivity. Their God is in charge of the future. Their God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Their God humbles people who walk in pride. And He restores those who turn from pride and look to Him like He did Nebuchadnezzar. You see, one of the things that we get here and we understand is that pride is the antithesis. Pride is the antithesis of a servant of God. You cannot... Be God-aware and prideful at the same time. You cannot be having true thoughts about God and prideful at the same time. Think about this. Jesus humbled Himself, became a man, lived a sinless life, and died a death on a cross. Because what we could not do, earn our salvation, God did for us by sending His Son to die on the cross. Where is the room for boasting in that? God did it. And one of the things that we need to know is not only in the Old Testament was God reigning supreme, But notice just a few verses in the New Testament. In John chapter 19, when Jesus was in front of Pilate, notice what Jesus said. We all know this. And so in verse 10, Pilate said to him, "Uh, You do not speak to me. Do you not know what authority I to release you, that I have the authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you? And notice what Jesus said. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Again, even more amazing in chapter 12 of the book of John, verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And the key for us as believers in this day who have put our trust and hope in Jesus, not only is there no room for pride in us, but... There is cause for great hope in us. Thankfully, and I know I've said this before and I'll say it again, thankfully, our hope does not lie in the President. Our hope does not lie in the Congress. Our hope does not lie in any political structure. Our hope lies in the God that we serve. And church, 
what would it really look like? What would it look like, church, if we, Christians, if we, people who have trusted in Christ as our Savior, who serve the living God of the universe, really begin to live like exiles in a foreign land? Who were not attaching their hope to any kingdom that we have built for ourselves? That our hope was, was not in congruence with whether or not the NASDAQ was up or down. That our hope was not in congruence with any of the comforts that we have or don't have. That our hope was not in whether or not the person that we want to be in office was in office. But what if we truly believed that the God of the universe was in control and we are His people? What would the church look like? First of all, I think that we would be a humble people that would be placing ourselves under God and in doing so, the idea that comes to my head is like that of Nebuchadnezzar. It's not one of, oh, I'm going to humble myself before God. No. As we sang today, that's why I love that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Those who humble themselves are His delight. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with joy. <laughs> That we would be a humble, joyful people. And that we would be a people who are helping other exiles along the way because we are not ashamed of our testimony, although our testimony is filled with shame. Oh, that we could be those kind of people. We would be a bold people. A bold people. Because when we're stepping out, we're not stepping out in our own strength, in our own power, according to what we want to happen. We are stepping out because we serve a God who is in control of all. And we would be a people who worshipped freely. Worshipped freely because we know that our God wins. Now, to end this morning... To end this morning, I want to do something maybe just a little bit odd. Um, and what, what we're going to do is, um, I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and I'm going to, I'm going to actually have a time, just a time of silence. I, I'm encouraged by the fact that. Um, if we could confess our pride, I am just encouraged about what would happen in and among us. And I just want to give a brief time of silence to where this morning you may take that time and humble yourself before God. And maybe this morning to deal with some areas of pride in your life and to to turn that over to God this morning. Again, in the book of James, it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I don't know about you, but the insanity of my life, the insanity of my life is that I can sit up here and tell you that what I want is grace. But too often I'm walking in pride. So I just want to give the opportunity. So I'm going to, 
in, a, in just a few moments, give the opportunity for you to, where you're sitting, to just confess those areas of pride in your life. To, to thank God for that He loves you and that He cares for you and that He is proud of you with the right kind of pride. There's an old song lyric that says, I want to have pride like my mother had, but not the kind in the Bible that makes you bad. <laughs> that we would bask in the love that God has for us. And, so, and then as, as Kurt leads us in a closing song, that we would worship, that we, not only that we serve the God of the universe, but that He loves us and He cares for us. So let's just take a moment. wealth or the power that King Nebuchadnezzar had. But yet many of us stumble because we look at our small domains. We look at the straw-like things around us that we count on to provide us security. We look at our own internal strength and pridefully feel like those things are what's going to get us through life. God, as we were reminded of as we sang this morning, what gets us through is that we're in your hands. God, I pray that we would just experience the grace of and the love that you have for us. God, I pray that we would turn from looking at ourselves and looking at our own pride and our own arrogance, that we would all turn from that on a daily basis and just be overwhelmed by the goodness of your grace towards those who walk in humility. And God, I pray that we would resist the world's call, which tells us that walking in humility is walking in defeat. And God, I pray that we would cling to your word, which tells us quite the opposite. That walking in humility makes us co-heirs with your son. God, all of this is only possible through your son Jesus, who left such a great example for us, it's in His name that we pray.